Luke chapter 3, um, if you will. Luke chapter 3, and um, a message titled 23 and Jesus. Now, this may look a little familiar to you. Um, this is very similar, um, maybe stolen from uh, 23 and Me, their little logo, but we got a cross happening in 23 and Jesus, and of course, that, that kind of... Uh, it asks the question, you know, where did Jesus come from? Because when we when we do um, one of these swab tests, you know, you do a swab and then you send it into a lab, and then they come back with all kinds of interesting information. They kind of tell you where you were from, you know, what countries you were from, and maybe that's a big surprise to you. You don't know that you were you're part Asian or you're part Native American or whatever. Maybe you thought you were Native American. You realize I'm not a Native American at all, you know. And me and Elizabeth Warren, and so. Yeah, sorry, that was so bad. I don't even know where that came from. Um, but but you you learn things about yourself, and and maybe you know maybe you you knew you were adopted. So you, and I know a guy who was he was adopted. So he did the he did the test, and then he came back. He found out he was related to all these different people, and that was kind of an exciting journey for him. Or maybe some bad things happen when you do this test, like you find out that you are adopted and you didn't know it. Or like one situation I, I heard about, and this is a true story, um, the whole all the siblings got it done, parents had already passed away, but the siblings all got it done, and they found out that one of the siblings wasn't related to dad, they were related to the guy down the street. Like that's stuff that daytime TV's made out of, right? And then you might find out, like, okay, now I know what I'm going to die from, you know, because it tells you all the diseases that you're prone to as well if you get the right test. So, you know, there's, there's things about that. You know, but, but families are made up of interesting things, and where we come from and, and what makes up a family can be very complex sometimes. In fact, my, my family's pretty complex. You know, we have a lot of adopted children in our family. And, and um, we just found out, and I know many of you have been praying for this, <sighs> you know, since October, we've been kind of in turmoil. I've even took a week off because we had some really difficult weeks um, with all this going on. But we just found out Friday that we get to adopt our foster daughter. Yeah. Actually, it, it, Shannon, will you stand up and just say hi? This is Anaya, everybody. Oh, sorry for you online. That's her. Um, but anyway. Oh, what a relief. And, and what's so awesome about it is it's not that we're just gaining a daughter, but like my wife told her birth mom, we're gaining two daughters. You know, I mean, we're going to adopt them into our family and her family. And so our family's just getting bigger and bigger. It's kind of ridiculous. But just, it's kind of cool. And, and so because of this, and I was so excited, um, I was in getting my allergy shots like I do very frequently at the doctor's office. And, and the nurse was in there with me. And I was, I was telling her, and I'm like, I'm so excited today. You know, and, and for the last, since October, really, if anybody says, how you doing? I, that's kind of a loaded question for me. I was like, oh, we're... Oh, you know, good. You know, well, probably not real good, but you know. But, but now it's like, good. Yeah, good. We're settled. Things are settled, and I feel so good. And, and so I'm telling this, this nurse, and then I, I pull out my phone, and I start showing pictures. And I'm showing pictures of my family. I'm showing pictures of her, and I'm showing all these pictures. And she's in there waiting with me for 10 minutes to make sure I don't die from the allergy shot. And so I'm, like, showing her pictures. And I got probably about five minutes into it, I realized, you know, she really doesn't want to see my pictures. But I'm so excited about it. I'm just showing her anyway. You know, this is where we went camping. This is, like, you know, this is our vacation. You know, <laughs> and she's like, oh, that's real great, you know. And I think that sometimes that's the way we feel when it comes to genealogies in the Bible. Like, I don't really care where that guy came from or whose father was who and whatever. And how many of you guys have, have come to a genealogy in the Bible and you're just like, I don't care. 
And so, you, you, you know, you're reading through, and it's like, okay, genealogy, skip to the next chapter, right? Go on to the next thing. I don't want to mess with that. In fact, we, I think a well-adjusted Bible reader does that. In fact, um, sometimes I even do that, you know, even when teaching. Like, we were in, in First Chronicles. And I'm literally, we went from 1 Chronicles chapter 1 to chapter 10 because the first nine chapters are this leader of this tribe and this is the leader of that family and this is how many people are in that, you know, and it was just like for nine chapters straight. And so we just kind of skipped through and I said, you guys read it on your own. It's exciting. <laughs> and yet sometimes when we're not so well adjusted like myself, we actually go through those genealogies and we're like, what kind of goodies can we find in here? And that's what we're doing today. I was telling Lyle earlier, I was saying, hey, we're going to be going through the end of that chapter three. It's a genealogy. It's all, it's all we're covering is a genealogy. And, and he says, I think I'm going to visit Calvary Chapel Suite this weekend. <laughs> so I understand if, if you, would, you would rather skip this, but here we are. Yeah, very exciting. So if you'll stand with me, Luke chapter three, verse 23 through 38, the word of the Lord. Says now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of um, Mattathiah, the son of Shemai, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the sons of Johannes the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of um, Elodam, the son of Er, the son of Jose. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> okay, I'm just, before, just we're just going to pause for a second. I just want to explain to you that I am probably not pronouncing any of these names right. So if you're thinking that's not right, you're right. It probably isn't. If you heard somebody that was speaking Hebrew pronouncing these or even Greek, they'd have a completely different take on this. I'm doing English, okay? So that's where we're at. Or Spanish, whatever the case may be. 29, the son of Josie, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon. The son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mele, the son of Menan, the son of um, Mattathiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Solomon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxat, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Father, we thank you for this passage, Lord. Though maybe we've never taken time to really consider it and what it means or implications behind some of these people and the names and what's happening here, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to all that you have for us by your spirit, that you would speak to us, Lord. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know you're sitting on the edge of your seats wondering what we're going to cover today. And, and perhaps you remember, and we've been on a journey, as you know, from, through the Gospel of Luke so far. We've covered a lot of things. Um, of course, the angel Gabriel making his rounds to 
to Zachariah and Elizabeth and telling them about their son John that's going to be born and of course um, to Mary and to Joseph and telling them that she's going to be the, the mother of, of the Most High that um, the shadow of, of God is going to over, the Spirit of God is going to overshadow her and she's going to give birth to the Son of God. You know, those things were told to her. And then, of course, we see Jesus' birth. We see his circumcision. We see John starting his public ministry. Well, Jesus in the temple at 12 years old and John starting his public ministry. All, all witnesses and testimonies to the fact of who Jesus Christ was. And so we have that witness, this, this story, this narrative. But then there's also this other witness that we're covering today. And that is the witness of who Jesus is. In fact, where he came from when it comes to his line and his lineage. Uh, this is an important thing, and maybe we don't even consider this is to be important. I think a lot of us as Americans, unless we've done the 23andMe or Ancestry or something like that, we don't really know where we came from or who our, our distant relatives are or anything. We couldn't trace, certainly not ourselves, back all the way to Adam. But it was kind of important that Jesus was able to do that for various reasons. But one thing I want to look at before we look at his genealogy is something that's super important, and that is in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. And it says this, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. We covered this last time, I realize. But notice this next part, and this is what I want you to pay attention to. And the voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now, when we think of that, we don't really or typically um, pair this with what comes next. You know, I, I think that we're, we're kind of in this place where we're looking at Jesus and, and his life and, and the beginning of his ministry as he's baptized and all of those things filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is kind of the beginning of things. Um, but then it just seems like we're just getting some paperwork out of the way or some, some legalist, um, legal documents um, signed as we go through this genealogy to prove that Jesus was from Adam. But there's so much more happening here. And I think that Luke, being the historian, being the one who would want to give an orderly account of everything to Theophilus and to the church as they read this, this um, gospel, that he would put these things in this order for a specific purpose. That here is the father saying, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I don't think that there's any mistake that that would come directly before now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. This is verse 23. Being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. God says, no, he is my son. He is the son of God. But also, as we'll see, he's the son of man. And, and that's what Luke is trying to communicate to us as he starts out this way. Now, it says again, verse 23, Now Jesus himself being, began his ministry at about 30 years of age. I, I think that's an interesting um, start time. You know, I, I, I started this church, because you could say about 30 years of age, when I, when I started the Bible study that became this church. My wife and I um, came out here from Boise. I wasn't quite 30, I was actually... 27. And we've been a church for 20. This is our 20th anniversary this year. And I know I don't look that old, but I am. But we started the church when I was, I was only 27 years old. And, and I don't know if you know anything about that or it's ever crossed your mind, but literally I felt like a baby. And, and really in pastor years, I was still an embryo at 27 years old. 
there was not a week that went by, and I, I'm not even exaggerating about this, that there wasn't a week that went by after a Sunday morning that somebody who was probably new came up to me, and, and in maybe a condescending tone or an inquisitive tone, with their brows kind of furrowed, said, how old are you? Because I just was not old enough to be a pastor. And it was weird because the day I turned 30, like that all stopped. And I don't know if there's something about the age of 30 that, that lends itself to that. But for whatever reason, when I turned 30, all of a sudden credibility seemed to fall upon me. And certainly that was the case in the Jewish culture. In their culture, they would train the Hebrew, the, the Levites and the priests, they would train them in their 20s, and when they turned 30, they would start to serve in the temple and they'd start to serve um, in the duties of the Levites. And, so, and then when they got older, in their 50s, they would start to train the younger people in their 20s to do those things. And so maybe there was something to that with Jesus' age being about 30 and all of a sudden it's time, but whatever the case is, that's when Jesus started his ministry at the age of 30, around 30. Being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Jesus was supposed to be, and no doubt that's what people thought when they met Jesus. And of course, it's been 30 years since this whole thing happened where Mary shows up pregnant in the middle of her betrothal. And, and what, what's even interesting to me is that after 12 years, when Mary and Jesus find um, Jesus in the temple after three days of searching for him frantically that Mary says why have you done this to us your father and I have searched diligently for you and Jesus retorts don't you know that I must be about my father's business and it says that they didn't even understand the saying which he told them that's kind of interesting because after 12 years, it's almost like it was just so settled as a family that they really didn't think of the implications of, of who Jesus was or what he might supposed to be doing, you know, as the son of God. That things have just be kind, be kind, of, kind of become normal. And I think that that was probably true for a lot of the people in their family or maybe a lot of the people in their community that they just knew Jesus is Jesus bar Joseph or Jesus the son of Joseph. Jesus the carpenter who worked in the carpenter shop with Joseph and had no, really no thought process that Jesus was something more than that. And so this was, was what was known about him as he was the son of Joseph, but was he? Was he the son of Joseph? Or was he not the son of Joseph? Actually, when you look at, at, at all these things in these genealogies, we find some strange things. And, and things we really have to answer and questions that are there that need to be unpacked and figured out. And one of them is, is that you have two genealogies that claim Joseph, one in Matthew and one here in Luke. And yet they're very different. Not only are they in opposite order, but the names starting from David are different. And so how do we reconcile that? Well, we find a few interesting things as we start to look at the Gospels. And maybe you've even wondered that. How many of you guys have... Um, I started reading the New Testament, you started in Matthew, and then you got to Luke, and you're like, wait a minute, this is the same story. Or Matthew, Mark, you, Mark, and then you, the same story, and then Luke, the same story, and then you get to John, it's okay, it's a little different, but it's pretty much still about Jesus, and, and why do they write four stories about Jesus? Anybody ever wonder that? Why do they write four stories about Jesus? And the reason that they did, you know, as we kind of unpack that, is that there were really four views of Jesus. And each one kind of tells, from their own perspective, 
what they saw of Jesus. It wasn't like Matthew wrote his, then Mark's like, well, that's not very good. He left out a lot of details. I'm going to go fix it. And then Luke's like, well, neither of those are right because they left out this part, so they went and fixed it. And then John's like, I don't like any of them. I'm going to write mine completely different, and I'm just going to write a bunch of stories about Jesus and then kind of end the same way. No, no, it wasn't that at all. In fact, all four of them had a specific and express purpose by the Holy Spirit to write their version of the gospel because it shows Jesus from four different angles. Matthew, being a tax collector, being somebody who was involved in government and understood how government worked, wrote his perspective as Jesus the King. Mark wrote his perspective. Actually, um, Mark would have been the Gospel of Peter because Peter was, Mark was with Peter and actually he shared Peter's account. Peter being the one who, when Jesus would gird himself with a towel and wash his disciples' feet, Peter's like, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And he's like, if, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part in me. And Peter's like, okay, then wash my feet and my head and my hands and everything, you know, and Jesus is like, oh, brother, Peter. But, you know, he, he saw, um, he saw a, a, as an example, because of that, the importance of, of the servitude of the Christian and the servitude of Jesus. And so he writes from that perspective, Jesus the servant. And then when you look at Luke, Luke, of course, is a physician. We know that. He's a historian. He's a physician. He's interested in human, the human man. And so he writes Jesus, the son of man, the, from that perspective. And then, of course, John being the mystic, you know, when you look at John's gospel, he's, he's definitely um, on a different level, a different plane. He writes about Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the early church recognized this as they looked at these four gospels. And they realized, and I don't know who it was, but oftentimes they'd write these four um, different things in, in picture form in the early church to illustrate this. And you find this in the catacombs and other places, but they recognized that the Gospels, the four Gospels, pictured or mirrored the four faces of the living creatures around the throne of God. In fact, in the same order. And so as you look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 7, it says this. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf or an ox. The third living creature like the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like an eagle. And in that order, Matthew, you have the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus the king. Mark, the ox or the calf, the, the servant beast, Jesus the servant. Luke, the man, Jesus the son of man. And John, the eagle, a majestic symbol of deity, Jesus as God. And, and probably the same as you see the four faces of the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 10. However, instead of the face of a lion, it says the face of a cherub. I don't know how to reconcile that. I'm guessing it's probably not a fat baby face. But probably that that was the face that was facing forward as the wings and everything were in order. And maybe it was like the face of a lion and he just figured that was the face of a cherub since that's the one out front. I don't know. I don't know um, exactly. But the other ones are the same. The eagle, the ox, the man. And um, then, of course, the, the face of a cherub or probably something that looked like a lion. But mysteriously, these were the same end signs or the same symbols that were ascribed to the four tribes who camped closest to the tabernacle. Now, if you remember in Numbers chapter 22, another one of those passages that you completely skipped over because it's just giving you lists of names and who camped first and all of this, but it, it describes the children of Israel camping around the, the tabernacle. And of course, the tabernacle had a big, you know, kind of a um, barrier fence around it, and, and it, was, it was rectangular. And the children of Israel were instructed to camp 
on the east and the west, the north and the south sides of the tabernacle. And that's how they were to camp, right? And so if you're a Jew and, and you're supposed to, this tr- tribe is supposed to camp first and the next tribe and the next tribe, how would you do that? Would you just kind of helter-skelter, you know, camp wherever you wanted to, you know, maybe a little bit northeast and maybe blending with the tribes on the other side? No. They're all about the rules, right? And so they would have camped directly from that side of the tabernacle, straight out in lines, three tribes on one side, three times on another side, three tribes on another side, and three tribes on another side. And they would have been, if you would have flown over it from the east, looking over the camps of Israel as they would have had their torches and lamps at night, you would see the Shekinah glory of God descending upon the tabernacle in the middle and a giant cross out in the wilderness as the children of Israel camped. And that's the shape that they camped in. That's significant. But beyond that, the ensign or the the standard that was representing the tribe of Judah, as you should know, was the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. For Ephraim to the west, that was the east to the west, the ensign for Ephraim was the ox. And then, um, let me make sure I get this in the right order, Um, to the south, the ensign for Reuben was a man, and then um, to the, e, or to the um, north, the ensign for Dan was the eagle. And so these four, um, these four faces would face the tabernacle the pres- where the presence of God was. And these are the four pictures that we have of Jesus Christ as we look at these things. And of course, Matthew traces, the same as the genealogies as we look at these four gospels, Matthew traces the line of David to Jesus, the heir to the throne of David, through Joseph, Mark, um, his genealogy is that he doesn't have one because a servant doesn't have a genealogy, right? So Matthew's Jesus lying to the king. Mark, no genealogy because a servant doesn't have a genealogy. Luke traces the humanity of Jesus and goes through Mary, and we'll discuss that. And then John traces Jesus' deity, so his genealogy um, is at the beginning of, of, of John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. And maybe you don't recognize it as a genealogy until today. But it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And then verse 14 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have a genealogy, not through man, but Jesus, the Word of God, who became flesh. And so all three of these have a genealogy that kind of follow the same amazing pattern. So this leaves a question. If Jesus was supposed to be the son of Joseph, why does Joseph's um, genealogy have anything to do with Jesus at all if, if he's not really his father? And, and that's a good question. You know, how could you say, well, he's supposed to be the son of Joseph? Or, or that he was, as it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, and Jacob begat Joseph, the, the, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus called the Christ. Well, remember in chapter 2, when they came, you know, I must be about my father's business. In other words, you're not my dad, Joseph. You're not my real dad, right? Not really. Not really. Actually, I think we'll find that Joseph had more of a stake to Jesus than we might first think. Both Mary and Joseph were from the tribe of Judah, some important things we need to know about Mary and Joseph, and that is, is that both of them were firstborn. That's important, because they weren't, none of this would, would work. 
But it all plays into a couple different things that give Joseph legal right to be Jesus's legitimate father. And, and that starts with the daughters of Zelophehad. I mean, how many of you have heard of the daughters of Zelophehad? Okay, two, it's, in Levit, or it's in the book of Numbers, and most of you just skip through Numbers because of the name, Numbers. I don't want to list n- numbers and names and all that stuff, but it's in Numbers chapter 27. Now, you remember that the children of Israel were out in the wilderness, and you know somebody was like, hey, he left his rake out, and I stubbed my toe on it. And another guy was like, hey, he hurt my son because he was neglectful. And everybody was bringing everything to Moses, and Moses was just like, oh. This is exhausting. And Jethro came to him and says, Moses, you can't hear every case. Let there be rulers of tens and rulers of of 100s and rulers of thousands, rulers of 10,000s. And then only the really serious cases will come to you. And this actually is how we set up our, our own judiciary, state level and then supreme court level in the federal government, that there's different levels of courts. There's local courts and appellate courts and you know, uh, district courts, and, and then finally the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, and Moses was that court. And so in Numbers chapter 27, we hear of a case that was brought before Moses. Kind of interesting. Um, it's in 27 verses 1 through 11, but we're only, for our purposes, going to look at verse 1 through 9. It says this, Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Makar, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters. Mahalah, Noah, Hogla, my favorite. Um, <laughs> if you're going to name a girl, Hogla. No, it, maybe it's Hogala. I don't know. Milcah and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not of the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in the company with Korah, but he died of his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among the family because he had no son? Give us a possession amongst our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. So Moses would stand at the, tabern- or at the, at the tent of meeting, which was different than the tabernacle. The tent of meeting was where Moses would speak with God. And so we'd sit there and, and he would listen to the case and then he'd go in before the Lord and he'd ask the Lord this question. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 6, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. Okay, so here's the scenario. We know from the Talmud, and it tells us, even though it's not, pro-Jesus, but the Jewish Talmud tells us that Mary was the son of Heli, who had no sons. So Heli died without a son. Mary was his firstborn. Heli was a firstborn. And so because Heli was the firstborn, his possession was to pass to Mary, who was, or his oldest son, who was to be his firstborn, but he didn't have an oldest son, so it would, because of the daughters of Zelophehad, pass to Mary. Joseph also was a firstborn of his family. And so the inheritance and the bloodline and everything, all the rights of redemption would pass through Joseph. And Joseph became 
Because of the Leverite laws, and, and if you understand Jewish law, they have all these laws to make sure that the bloodline of, of a man who is a firstborn continues on so that they can have right to inheritance of their possession and their birthright. And so because of the Leverite law, which stipulated that if there was a man who, whose, um, whose, whose son didn't bear, his firstborn son died before he bore a son, then his brother would take his wife. And if, if he died, then the, the next brother would take the wife and they would bear a son unto that, that man who died to take on the responsibility. Well, it was the same with the daughters of Zelophehad. If they didn't have a firstborn son, then the oldest daughter would marry a man and at the betrothal, and this is important, at the betrothal, Joseph would have legally become the son of Heli, legally, with the intention and with the, the responsibility to have a son with Mary, who would then become also the son of Heli, the one who was the heir, and he would inherit everything that was Heli's as well as everything that was Joseph's. And so Joseph was giving his inheritance to, you know, Jesus, as well as Mary would pass through her, giving her inheritance to Jesus. And so therefore, by law, Jesus would be legally the son of Joseph because of this, all these weird laws. And because the betrothal happened before she got pregnant. Uh, and this is why Joseph thought about putting her away privately. But then, of course, it was... God, who, who, and so there wasn't a male to fulfill the responsibility, so Joseph would have by default fallen into that responsibility and taken on responsibility of that as a kinsman. And then it also falls under the laws of the kinsman redeemer, weirdly, because of just the strange circumstances of everything. So this is important because it qualifies Jesus to be the heir to the throne of David, which is kind of important and important for more reasons than you might think. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, it says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ, or the Messiah. Earlier on in Matthew, it ties Jesus to this kingly line. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, And Jesse begot David. Of course, this is King David. Right, David, who got the Davidic covenant, who God said, through you I'm going to build a house, and basically he gave him the, um, the privilege of being the great-great-great-great-grandfather of the Messiah. David knew the Messiah was going to come through his line. And so he, Jesse begot David, the king. David, the king, begot Solomon by her, her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. So if you read 2 Kings, you, or maybe it's 1 Kings, but if, if you read that, 1 Chronicles, you remember these kings, the, the kings of Judah, as they um, became king. And, and so um, Luke's following, or Mar Matthew's following the genealogy of the kingly line, whereas Luke follows a different genealogy through the son of David, a different son of David. And so in verse... Luke chapter 3, verse 31 and 32, it says, The son of Mela, the son of Menan, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed. And that's where those two genealogies coincide. Again, Matthew travels one direction from Abraham down to Jesus. And, and of course, um, Luke travels from Jesus all the way to Adam. So they're, they're op they go the opposite direction. But they, they coincide at that part. And they diverge at Solomon and Nathan, both sons of David, but they follow a different line at that point. 
Now, after they're brought to Babylon, oh, one thing I do want to say before I get into that, just in case you missed the implications of what I was trying to say earlier. The reason it says Joseph, the son of Heli, is because at their betrothal, he would have become his son because he was fulfilling the duty of the firstborn for Mary. And that's why it says Joseph, the son of Heli, rather than Mary. And so it doesn't need to say Mary. And of course, in Matthew, several women are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In Luke, none are mentioned. And, And that's because he's writing it to a Roman official and they wouldn't want to hear about any women, right? And that's just, that's just the way that it was. But anyway, but in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, it says, um, just, just as just the middle of the genealogy, it says, after they were brought to Babylon, and of course, you remember the, the kingdom of Judah was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, um, and when they were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, it says, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. So the king Jeconiah, who was the last of the kings in David's line, was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He was brought to Babylon, and he lived the rest of his days in Babylon. He had a son named Shealtiel. His son, um, Shealtiel's son was Zerubbabel. Now, you remember some of those names. Jeconiah, you know, after that, they had vassal kings over Judah, which were like Jehoiakim and other guys, but they weren't from that royal line. Jeconiah was the last of the royal line. He comes to Babylon, and then he has his grandson Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel would be the one who would go back with Ezra to rebuild the temple, if you remember the history. He'd go back with him, but he was not a king. He was just a governor, right? And he, so he governed the area, and then later Nehemiah would take over and become the governor. But this Jeconiah, or we could call him Kaniah, because he was also called Kaniah, Jeconiah or Kaniah, was the last king of Judah on David's line. But there's a problem. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 27 through 30, it says, but to the land which they desire to return. So this is written during the time of Jeconiah. They desired to return to what land? Israel, right? They were carried away to Babylon. They shall not return. Is this man Kaniah? And so that's Jeconiah a despised, broken idol, a vassal, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? Babylon, right? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Oops. So what God did, and and no doubt Satan and all of his cohorts were celebrating with joy because what God did was he placed a blood curse on the line of David that was heir to the throne of David. That's a problem. Because how is the Messiah going to rule on the throne of David if he has no right to it because of the blood curse? Well, because he was adopted. And that's how he can. He was legally adopted, so he wasn't of the bloodline, but he still was Joseph's son based on the Leverite laws and the kinsman redeemer laws, and so he could be his son, and he could inherit the blessing without being part of that bloodline. Kind of amazing the way that all these things work out. In other words, Jesus was the son of God and the son of man. St. Augustine came to a very interesting conclusion concerning Jesus' birthright and his virgin birth. 
And that was the idea that sin passed not through the woman, but actually through the man. And maybe nobody had ever thought about that before that, but Augustine kind of came up with this idea that, that the sin is not coming from the woman, but actually from the seed of the man, right? And so when your husband say, you know, your son did this, you say, no, 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 your son. <laughs> he didn't get his sin from me, he got it from you, right? And, and why do we know that? Well, because we know that Adam was the one who sinned. Even though Eve ate of the fruit first, Adam was the one who sinned. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. So Jesus, being the son of Mary, biologically, would not receive the curse of sin in his bloodline, even though Mary was a sinner. But it was the seed of the woman. The seed of the man always brings sin, but the seed of the woman, which is prophesied in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, was a, a, a virgin-born son, the son of God. And that's, that's interesting. Another interesting thing is that Matthew seems only to be interested in Jesus' genealogy from Abraham through David. Of course, we have the Abrahamic covenant, and we have the Davidic covenant. Those two covenants are important to Matthew because that establishes Jesus as the rightful king over Israel. But Luke takes us all the way back to Adam, the original man. What was before Adam? God. Yeah, God was the only one before Adam. And this has important implications that we'll talk about in a minute. But let's talk about the early genealogy of, of um, Jesus. The part of the genealogy that every single one of us shares together. Now, if you can think of what genealogy or what family line we all share together, what would that be? Of course, we're all related to who? Adam, right? And who else? Noah, right. Somebody got it. Noah. We're all related to Adam, and we're all related to Noah, and it's at Noah that every line diverges, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And in Genesis chapter 10, you see the, the table of nations, which interestingly enough, if anybody's ever studied anthropology, this is something that they study because you can map every person in the world and where they came from, from Genesis chapter 10, and they still use it. Maybe they don't say it's from the Bible, but you can map every person in the world and where they went from Genesis chapter 10, from the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And so um, we, 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 we share that genealogy from Noah to Adam with every single person in the world. And I think God has something to say to us about that. We all have this common ancestry. We all start with that same place of sin and move forward um, to the flood. And, and after that, everything kind of changed. But Luke, verse 36, repeats um, what we find also in Genesis chapter 5. Now, how many of you guys, when you started reading your Bible, you started in Genesis because that's the beginning of the book? Okay. And how many of you, when you got to Genesis chapter 5, you saw, oh, this is just a bunch of names, so I skipped it? <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty common. But in Genesis chapter 5, we see some interesting things. Luke records it for us in Luke chapter 3, verse 36 through 38. So go ahead and turn there with me, and we're going to skip the first part of verse 36. Um, uh, it, it says, the son of Shem, and, and if you look there in the middle of verse 36, the Shem, of course, is the, the father, uh, you know, out of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Shem is the father of the Semitic people. And so if you're familiar with that, anti-Semites, you know, the, the Shem is where we get the word Semite. So the son of Shem, the son of Noah, 
And, and what's interesting, I'm just going to kind of give you um, the, root the root meaning of these names as we go through them. Noah, his, his name means rest or peace. The son of Lamech, his name means despairing. You, you kind of get the idea um, as you go through these and the, the names of these people have significance to what was happening at the time that they were born. And as you read through Genesis 1 through 4, you kind of get um, a feel for all of that. Um, of course, um, Lamech, um, the son of Methuselah, Methuselah's name means his death shall bring. Now, if you remember, God said that in 120 years, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood, build an ark, right? And, and it was when, when Methuselah would die is when judgment would come, which is really interesting because Methuselah ends up being the longest living man ever to live, 996 years or something like that. No, 69 years. Okay, is that what it was? Yeah, okay, so 969 years, longer than anybody else, and that just shows God's grace, right? When he dies, judgment's coming. And so his name was, his death shall bring. And then um, he was the son of Enoch. Now, of course, Enoch, remember, he was taken. He never died. He was taken for, um, he walked with God, and God took him, so he was not. Enoch was a teacher of righteousness, and, and his name is teacher or preaching. And then um, his, his son was Jared, the son of Jared. His name means descending. Um, his son is Mahalalel, the blessed God. The son of Canaan, his name means sorrow. The son of Enosh means mortal or frail. Um, it can also mean, you know, um, per, um, prone to die. And then the son of Seth means, uh, son of Seth means appointed. Remember Mary said, God has appointed one to take over for Abel who slain, Cain killed. And then of course the son of Adam and his name means what? Man, right? Now, one thing that was, I think, something that sparked my interest in the Bible and, and weird things like this, when I was very young as a Christian, in my 20s, the early 20s, or actually not even 20, probably 19, I used to listen to The Grand Adventure. Now, most of you probably have no idea what The Grand Adventure was because it got changed later on to 6640. But Chuck Missler used to have this program called The Grand Adventure, and, and he would go through this. And I remember the first time listening to this, and, and he's talking to the same thing I was kind of stealing from him when I said that. But, but, you know, about everybody just skipping over genealogies. And then he took all these names, and he laid them out in a row, and this is what it says. Man appointed mortal sorrow, and the blessed God shall come down preaching, and his death shall bring the despairing rest. Isn't that amazing? Let me read it again. Man appointed mortal sorrow, and the blessed God shall come down preaching, and his death shall bring the despairing rest. It's the gospel. The first, the, the, the genealogy that we all have in common with Jesus, those first um, few names within the genealogy of Adam to Noah share the gospel message. And Jesus said this in, in John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. In him, it tells us in John chapter 1, was life, and that life was the light of man, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He came to his own and his own would not receive him, but as many as would receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. It, it, Jesus is the light. In other words, the Bible is all about Jesus. It's all about his light and his life, and we see it on every page of the Bible. 
And to the diligent student who will take the time to wade through these genealogies and, and everything else is there, you'll find that everything points back to Jesus Christ in one way or another. But where does death come from? Where does death come from? Sin, yeah, where, where did sin come from? Where? Satan, and passed on to who? Adam, which passed on to all of us. Remember, we, we read kind of that in, in Romans chapter 5. I want to read a few other verses. I mean, it's like Romans chapter 5, Paul, he says the same thing about 17 different ways. Again and again and again and again. So I had to kind of choose which verses I wanted to use. But these, I felt these verses kind of um, said it the way I wanted it, to hear it. In verse 15, it says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And then verse 18, notice this. Therefore, as, though, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And this brings us to another and very interesting discovery. And that is in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, the end of Jesus' genealogy. Or we could say the beginning. As it says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's interesting. I remember the first time I read that. And I thought, wait a minute. Who's the son of God? Jesus. In fact, he's the only son of God, right? It's, it's, the, it's the gospel in a nutshell. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believe in him and not perish but have everlasting life. And then I realized, wait a minute. There's something I missed. His only begotten son. Oh, so the only born son of God. How did Adam come in, into being? Well, remember, it was God created him from the dust of the earth, and he breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living being. And then God put Adam into a garden that he planted east in, um, eastward in Eden. And he, gave, he, he told the man, he says, Of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but the, the tree that is in the midst of the garden you shall not eat, for the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And then God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so God brought all the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. And Adam noticed something, no doubt, as he's bringing these animals to him, that, that there's a male and female of each one that God had created from the dust of the earth. And after he named all the animals, it says that Adam could not find a helper comparable to him. And so God put him into a deep sleep. Adam, first of all, realized that he was alone in this world. And so God would put him in a deep sleep and he slept. And God took from his side one of his ribs and he made it into a woman. He brought her to the man. And, and Adam immediately understood what was going on. He says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken from the man. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Things were wonderful. Things were, were paradise. The man and the woman, they, they had nothing but love between each other. I always thought it was interesting that God would not take the woman from the ground like he did the man. He actually took her from the man. 
And then they would, they would love each other and, and they would have a child. Knowing each other, they'd have a child and, and that child would come from them. And what, what's interesting is you think about the implications of that is you have, you have three persons, one substance. Who is Eve? She's Adam. She's his better half, right? She's his emotional half. And who is the, the child? The child is the, the one that would proceed forth from them and therefore it becomes a picture of who God is. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, not three gods, but one God. And the family becomes a picture of God as it's the father, the wife, and the child. Each of them bearing the same roles as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father's the head. He loves the Son. The husband's to love his wife. The wife submits to her husband. Jesus was always submitted to the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and the Son, bringing honor to the husband and, or the, the father and the son, as well as the child is to proceed forth from the father and the mother and bring honor to their parents. This is the first commandment with a promise, right? Ephesians 6.1. And so God, God created mankind and he placed them in the garden and, and it's Adam and Eve. And then of course, the dark curtain comes across and you see Genesis chapter three. The serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of all the trees of the garden? And she says, no, we, we can eat of the trees of the garden. It's just the tree, the tree in the midst of the garden that we're not to eat not, or even touch lest we die. And then Satan says, you shall not surely die for God knows the day you eat of it, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And she looked at the tree. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, that it was good for food, that it was desirable to make one wise. And she took and she ate and she gave to her husband with her. And he ate, and their eyes were open, and they became, and they knew good and evil. And they saw that they were naked, and so they, they sewed fig leaves together to, to clothe themselves. And then they heard the, the sound of the Lord, God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves amongst the trees. And God said, where are you, Adam? He says, we hid ourselves because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam was so quick to say, it was that woman you gave me. You're your fault. You, her, you, you gave her to me. And he says, why have you done this? And she said, it was the serpent. He beguiled me. He deceived me. And I ate. And he says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all cattle. On your belly you shall crawl, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, let's stop right there. Okay, wait a minute. I love when I do marriage counseling with young couples because I'll always ask them. Like, I get to chapter three, verse, you know, one, two, maybe three verses in, and we read it. And I say, what's the problem with this? And invariably, they always say the same thing. Well, he lied. Oh, really? That's the problem? Yeah, yeah. What else? I don't know. And then I ask him something a little bit sarcastic. I say, so you go out in the garden and you see a little snake there and he starts talking to you and you're totally good with that? <laughs> you see the problem? How is it that a snake is talking to her and she's understanding it? How are they having a conversation? This is so weird. And yet we're just so used to the story that we just think that that's normal. It's not normal. <laughs> or is it? 
Now, this is something that was interesting to me as I started to read a lot about Christian, you know, and my wife and I have read dozens of these books, you know, Christians who go out into the bush and, you know, go out to headhunters and they go out to, you know, Papua New Guinea and, and Philippines and the hills of China, all these different places. And you know what's interesting about all those places where people have isolated themselves from society and, and they start to worship they're gods in those areas. You know what those gods are, and they all understand this. They're worshiping demons. Whether they call them the gnats, or they call them the, you know, the, the demons or whatever, but they all recognize they're worshiping demons, and the demons always appear how? As an animal, always. They call it animism for that reason. They're worshiping animals, and so what happens is the witch doctor takes some drugs or something, goes into some sort of a trance, and then he sees in the Philippines with Joanne Shetler, and the word came with power, it was the, it was the warthog. She would, the, the witch doctor would talk to the warthog, the warthog would make its demands, say, these are all the things you have to do, or people are going to die, and, and they would just keep the people in poverty and, and difficulty in life, and they would do all the things that it demanded, or they would all die. In the Motolonis, they would, they would hear from the panther, the, the witch doctor would go out into the, into the woods or into the jungle, and he'd meet with the panther, and the panther would say, this is how many people are going to die tonight. And that was just the way it was. And so they'd all bang rocks together thinking that would keep them safe to scare off the spirit, I guess. And in the morning, that's how many people died. That is until Bruce Olson brought the gospel to them, and it was the first time that the witch doctor said four people were going to die, and nobody died because they'd all received Jesus. But they're demons, and they always appear as animals. I don't know why, but it, it kind of helps us understand this isn't so weird. Adam and Eve somehow could see spiritual things, you know, and, and what, for whatever reason, they're represented by, the, rep- represented by these animals. You know, principalities and powers, I'm not sure how that all works, nor do I really want to, but it kind of helps us to see that it's not such a strange thing that he would appear as a serpent. But what's important is that what's said next, and that is God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. Now, what does it mean that he's going to crush his head? It means that there's going to be a a seed of a woman, which is odd, because the seed always comes from the man, right? You read through the Bible, Abraham's seed, you know, through Abraham's seed and through David's seed, and all these seeds are always the man. The woman has the egg, the man has the seed, but through the seed of the woman, which speaks of a virgin birth. And he would crush the, the head or the authority of the serpent. He would undo what happened there in the Garden of Eden by crushing his head, his authority. And how would that happen? Well, he gained authority when Adam and Eve took something from the tree and they ate it. They fell into bondage, into slavery. The whole world's under the sway of the wicked one, right? And also we know, as we're going to look at in my next sermon, um, when we look at Jesus' temptation, that the devil has rule over all the world when he takes Jesus on a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, bow down and worship me. Jesus doesn't say, they're not yours. And he says, no, you should worship God only. Right? And so Satan has this power and he got it from the man because when man submitted himself to him, he fell into bondage and into slavery to the devil. Well, there's interesting laws. Again, a book you probably never read called Leviticus, because who wants to read through all those laws? But chapter 25 talks about the laws of the kinsman redeemer. And this is significant, because in Jesus' line, remember, it was Boaz and Ruth. And if you understand the laws of the kinsman redeemer, there in Leviticus chapter 5, it goes through all this 
all the rigmarole of if you go into slavery and you lose your, your inheritance, you know, your, your land, you have to sell it because you can't afford to pay your debts, or you even sell yourself into slavery, then your closest relative has what they call the right of redemption, right? And so your closest relative can come and pay back your debt, pay off your debt, buy your land back, and set you free if you're in slavery, but it was also more complicated than that. And it was more far-reaching than that. And there was also the Leverite responsibilities that went along with that. And so in the book of Ruth, we kind of see a complex situation. Um, you remember that Naomi and her husband and her sons, Malon and Chilion, all um, had famine in the land of, of Israel. And so they left Israel and they went to a place they were not supposed to go, the land of Moab. No Moabitess is to enter the children of Israel. That was the law. But they went there anyway. And then they found daughters amongst the Moabites for their sons, Malon and Chilion. They gave Malon Ruth, and they gave Chilion Oprah, or Ophah, or whatever her name is. But Oprah Winfrey is named after this woman. You'll see why in a moment. And, and so um, Naomi's husband dies. Malon's, Malon dies. Chilion dies. They all die. And, and Naomi's like, I'm bitter. You know, God's taken everything from me. And she goes to her two daughters-in-law. Ruth and Orpha. And she says, go back to your people. Go back to your gods. Go back to your civilization. I'm going to go back to the land of Israel. And Oprah's like, great, I'll go worship foreign gods. You know, she went. But Ruth says, no. My God is going to be your God. My people is going to be your people. I'm going to serve you. I'm, going to, I'm, your, I'm your daughter. And so she went with Naomi back to the land of Israel. Well, of course, they were poor. They didn't have their land. They sold it before they went to Moab. They had nothing. Nobody to redeem the land. Nobody to bear sons for their, her sons that, that died, her son Malon who died. Nobody to carry on the line. Huge problem. And she's like, you know, go out in, the, out in the field and glean. And of course, that was their welfare system. If you were poor and you didn't have anything, you could go behind the reapers in the fields and you could collect whatever they left behind. And they were to leave some behind. And they weren't to glean the corners. And so it was kind of the welfare system. You go out and you glean. And so she was out there with the gleaners, you know, the poor people. And Boaz, the owner of the field, sees her out there, and he's like, you know, she looks like a, a nice lady. You know, leave a little bit more behind for her. And, and so when she comes home to Naomi, Naomi's like, somebody's shown you favor. You know, somebody's, you know, because she had a lot, way more than you should be able to glean. And she's like, I'm, I'm gleaning in a field of a man named Boaz. And she's like, oh, he's a close relative. He's a close kinsman. And she tells her, this is what I want you to do. When they have the harvest party, when the grain's in the field and everybody sleeps out there so nobody comes and steals it, and they have a big party, and they stay out there in the fields all night, go to his bed, take up the corner. This was not profane or anything. It wasn't immoral. But take up the corner of his, his blanket and put it over yourself and sleep at his feet. And when he woke up, he understood the implication. She was making herself available to him. She's saying, I am a relative who needs to be redeemed, will you bring your covering over me? When he saw that, he was flattered. He's an older guy, and she's a young, attractive young woman. And he thought, wow, okay, you know, she wants me to redeem her. And so he finds out that she's, you know, from, she tells him, I'm from, I'm Malon's wife, and he died and everything, and will you, per, will you perform this rite of the kinsman redeemer for me? And he's like, you know what, there's a closer relative. So let me find out. So he went to the other guy. Well, the other guy was also firstborn, so he had an inheritance and, and the right of the firstborn. And um, 
and also um, he, he thought, well, I'll redeem the field. Yeah, sure, I'll buy back that property of my close relative. And he says, okay, well, you have to marry this Moabitess woman and then bear a son for Malon, and then your inheritance is going to go to that boy. And it's going to be Malon's inheritance as well as your inheritance. He's like, oh, I can't do that. It'll ruin my inheritance. He's, so he said, okay, I'll let you have it. And so he took off his sandal. He spit in his shoe. This, all this weird things that they did, they had this whole rigmarole that they'd go through. And Boaz says, you know, hey, I can do it. And so Boaz marries her, and he bears a son. And the son would be his son, but it also would be Malon's son. It would legally be Malon's son because he performed the rite of the firstborn. And, and that was Obed, who was father to Jesse, who was father to David, Right? Okay, so what does all this mean for us? Jesus was Adam's brother, right? Different mother, same father, right? Actually, Adam didn't even have a mother. But he was his brother. He was his nearest kinsman. And so Jesus had the right to redeem what Adam had lost in the garden. What was the debt owed for that? The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Somebody had to die. Somebody who wasn't a sinner. Somebody who could be born, live a perfect life, and then be being his closest relative, die in his place. And that's why it tells us in Revelation chapter 12 that Jesus is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus was accounted as payment for Adam's sin, Adam's transgression from the very beginning. And what did you have to do? If your kinsman came to you and said, I paid your debt, what did you have to do to receive it? Thank you. And you walked free. The free gift is not like the offense. Anybody who receives it will not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever will. Jesus gives it freely. As many as received it, he gave the right to become the children of God. We are adopted into his family. We become his heir. Through all these laws, as they, they kind of collide into this amazing crescendo of Jesus and what he's done for us. And we become adopted sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. And it's available to anybody who's part of that family. What family? The Adams family. <laughs> and that's you and me, right? Sin entered the world. Jesus came to set us free from sin. Adam and Eve took something from the tree. Jesus died on the tree, reconciling the whole thing and reconciling us to God. And he is the light that shines into every man who comes into the world. And anybody who will say yes. But here's the problem. There was also a law within the kinsman redeemer that if you loved your master and you didn't want to go free, you could say no to your kinsman redeemer. You could say no to the, the year that everybody would go free. And you could say, no, I want to serve my master forever. And you would become a bond slave to that master perpetually. And I think that many people do that. They want to serve. I love sin. I love sin for a season. I want to serve sin. I don't want to serve God. And so they become a bond slave of sin. And then why would they go to hell? Because it was prepared, Matthew chapter 25, for the devil and his angels. And if you belong to him, that's where you're going to go. But if you accept the free gift that Jesus gives you by dying on the cross for your sins, then you are set free and you enter into life and into light and into redemption, a redemption that was bought on the cross, but from the foundation of the world, the day that God promised it, it was accounted to anyone who would believe. And they looked forward to the day that the Messiah would come. We look back on the day the Messiah did come, and life is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's, let's stand and we'll pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, just um, the implications of all of these things that, that kind of play together as we look at this genealogy and we look at the, the fascinating things that are written of you in your word, Lord. May our eyes be opened and may our hearts be repentant towards, towards you to turn from Satan, to turn from sin, and to say, God, I don't want to serve the darkness anymore. I want to come into the light. Lord, help us not to be afraid. As your light shines on us, I know things are exposed, and yet we need that. To be exposed and to say, yes, Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe you paid the price for me. And maybe for the first time, I understand what you've done. And yet, I think it's going to take all eternity for us to understand what you've done, Lord. But I just pray that our hearts will be open and our, our minds would be open to all that you have, that we have ears to hear what your spirit is speaking to us right now. As you call for us to come away, to come away from sin, to come away from, from condemnation, to come away from bondage, to come away from evil, and to walk in the light as you are in the light. Jesus, may that be who we are. Not one foot in the world and one foot in, in the kingdom, but fully yours. Jesus, fully following you. And as we take communion this morning, that we would, we would reconcile those things, that we would repent of our sin, that we would come clean before you and say, God, I see. I see what you've done through your wonderful son, Jesus Christ, who died in my place. And, and I want to, to live in that place, not in the, this dark and lonely world, but in, in the fullness of the light of the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, help us to be in that place. We love you and we praise you, Jesus. You're so wonderful. You're so good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.